I started working with a new sponsor. At the time, I, I, I'm obsessed with finding a girl, right? I need to, I need somebody to complete me. He just looks at me and he's like, Ben, you've absolutely nothing to offer a girl right now. <laughs> and they say, they always suggest no one date in the first year, which right. uh, everyone ignores. And I'm like, well, what if I meet the girl in my dreams in my first year? Like, according to this rule, I'm not going to be able to, mm-hmm. to date her. Like, what happens in that scenario? And he's like, Ben, you should seriously get on your knees every morning and pray that you don't meet that girl in the first year of your sobriety because she's going to want nothing to do with you. The girl of your dreams does not want the person you are right now. So Ben R. is 25 years old. His sobriety date is May 17th, 2015, which means he's qualified to say, I've never had a legal drink. My name is Mike S., and this is another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. I remember when I had less than 30 days sober, I met up with an interim sponsor. He said, meet me outside of the Soul Cycle on Maiden Lane here in New York City. And after we had spoken for about an hour, he gave me three homework assignments. The first one, he said, text him three things that I'm grateful for every day. The second thing was, he said, if I'm going to drink, call him. But if I've already drank, don't call him. And then the third thing he said was, he goes to me, he goes, he goes what do you like? Do you like guys? Do you like girls? And he goes, whatever you like, go home, make a Tinder account for yourself, and go get laid. He goes, you need something to take your mind off your obsession to drink. So, I first of all, I think it's important to distinguish that while those first two pieces of, of advice are pretty standard for any new sponsor-sponsee relationship, I've yet to hear anyone else recommend a fresh Tinder profile. But that being said, I, I took the advice. What else do I know? And I've heard it said many times in the rooms, one of the illusions of not drinking is that your body recovers pretty fast, much faster than your mind does. And especially for someone who felt hungover and tired all the time, like me, I'm sure after 30 days, I probably felt amazing. And it gives the impression that if my body feels good, then my mind must be right. And, you know, I can look back and laugh at that now because not only was I just completely unprepared with how to date as a sober person, you know, and I've talked about those examples, going to the bartender, asking him to make me fake drinks to keep, you know, to give the impression that I was drinking or just, you know, the the silly lies that I would tell people I'm on antibiotics, I'm doing a sober November, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Just, you know, being afraid to just own the sobriety, but also things that, you know, if let's say the date actually went well, you know, In my mind, I'm going zero to 60. You know, it could be the second date. I'm already painting the white picket fence on the house and picking out the family dog in my head. And and of course, when it didn't go well, I would be completely unable to handle that, emotionally speaking. You know, I remember sitting in an AA room once for hours. I think I had nine months sober and like in shock because what I had thought was like my soulmate hadn't actually materialized and I was just having that urge to drink to numb that all out. And, you know, as Ben talks about in that previous clip and, you know, as we discuss in the interview, uh, you change a lot and you change a lot really fast in sobriety. Um, And I think that the person you think you want in the beginning probably won't be that person in a few years. Don't get me wrong. I've heard people that met their person in early sobriety and they went on and got married and had kids, but for the most part, the prevailing message that you get is that you're going to change a lot. And what you think you want when you have 30 days sober probably won't be what you want when you have five years sober. So, you know, just a quick reminder, if you like the content, it really does help to leave a quick review on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. But with that, on to my interview with Ben R. I remember meeting you when I had like one year and you had, I think, two Right, so I got sober at 20. So May 17th of 2015, uh, my birthday's October 21st, so I had a whole summer of sobriety before actually turning 21. Right. So I'm of that class of alcoholics who've never had a legal drink. Right, right. It's been interesting to get sober young from the perspective that I I thought it would be such a barrier at first when I first came in. I felt like I was going to have to give up everything I'd ever known. I saw all these people around me. The people that I looked up to in my peer group were using substances mm-hmm. really to, to function and to socialize. 
So when I first came to AA, I was like, I'm going to have to give all this up. And now I'm going to have to become a part of this group that, you know, I'll, I'll be relegated to and kind of stuck to these misfits who don't really fit in. And did you, when you were, you know, 20, did you have to get a whole new friendship circle? I know it's not abrupt. It's never abrupt. But are you still friends with those guys from when you were 20? So it's so funny that you'd ask that because just last weekend, I was able to spend some time catching up with them. And it was a great reminder of the fact that like we actually are solid friends. And I had a number of people who came up to me and really kind of put me in my place. I'm like, hey, you're going to need to put some distance between this group for a little while before determining whether or not they're actually going to stay in your life. Yeah. And that really bothered me because there was a part of me deep down that knew that I had genuine connections with these guys. But at the same time, they were my running buddies and we did everything together. So it's funny, actually, a year and a half before I got sober, it was New Year's Eve. We picked up a quarter of blow and all of us went out, started drinking. I was doing other pills and it was a messy night, but Mm. pretty average. And my now ex-girlfriend... One of my brothers and two of my best friends were all using together. And at three in the morning at one of my buddy's places, they sit me down for an intervention. Really? Really. Okay. So, so it's one of those situations where in the moment I'm like, fuck you So guys. the people that are high as fuck are yeah. sitting you down for an intervention. Exactly. Exactly. So we, you know, literally handed me the straw, you know, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, you need to stop doing you have this. The yeah, you have a problem. We're worried about you. Da, da, da. And because you use differently than they did. Right. So I'm the guy and but that's the environment I'm in, right? Everyone around me that I've surrounded myself with at this point is, you know, they're functioning, they're going to college, they're doing all this stuff. And you um, and I'm in that group, barely hanging like, on by a you thread. Went to, you're going to a pretty prestigious school. Right. So at that time I was actually going to uh, Bucknell down okay. in Pennsylvania. Okay. And it became very clear that my use, although it started in a similar way to the use of a lot of my friends and people around me was not the same. And so now at this point, I'm pretty deep into opiates and Mm, I'm nodding off at this, you know, couch while we're trying to watch the ball drop, you know, and everyone else is like there and present and did it. So we're doing all the same stuff, but I was never on the same level. You know, I always had my own little stash for myself and I was always finding ways to really make sure that I was always going to be checked out. Yeah. And even if it looks like we're all participating in this in the same way, like the way I thought about drugs and alcohol, the way I approached my life was so fundamentally different. And even though my friends aren't alcoholics, they understood that. And so when they're doing this intervention, though, you're aren't you like, hey, listen, like I just saw you all do a line. Like, yeah. Why are you pointing a finger at me? Right. Or so, did it, or did you get it? Oh, no, I, I was I was adamant. I was pissed. Yeah. Very pissed. And I think now with some perspective, I can see why they did it. And it was because they had to work up the courage. You know, they didn't want to do that. They knew what my reaction was going to be. And so it was, I really don't, I think it was one of those things where they're just like, look, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. And what do they say to you? So they sit me down and there had to have been some planning in it because one of them had a urine test and they're like, Ben, we know you've still been doing opiates. Because again, at the time it's like, Ben doesn't have a problem with drugs and alcohol. Ben just has a problem with opiates. So yeah. like, he can what, still smoke What was your thing? Percocets, Vicodin? Percocets, yeah. So yeah. I fell deep into uh, Perk 30s were the go-to. I was very comfortable with just taking them once in a while in high school and then made a conscious decision one summer when I came back from my first year of college. Uh, I came home and found out that my family world was a little turned upside down. I came back and found out that my mom was having an affair and I had just made the dean's list, had done all this stuff and was still, you know, really depressed and there were some things that needed to be addressed, but that really gave me fuel because it was like, look, like A, I made the dean's list. B, mom's over here sleeping with some other person. Dad's not around. So, like, none of you can say shit to me. Yeah. You know? And the drugs and alcohol that I'd been taking up to that point was no longer working. It wasn't shutting off that noise the way I needed it to. So, I hung out with a group of friends. I'm a big chameleon. And so, one group of friends that I hung out with was deep into opiates. And, you know, I would pick up from them for parties and those sorts of things. And so, I made a conscious decision to start spending more time with these guys. Um which was noticed by the group of friends who ended up giving me that intervention. Which was a different group. A different group. We all kind of intermingled, and so we were all buddies, but they, there was a there was a clear distinction between the two. Now explain, I like the, I like the phrase chameleon because I think I was one too, but like what does it mean to you? So to me, it just means I am comfortable wearing any mask. So if I walk into a situation, I'm very quickly determining, all right, what is the social cost of me being my true self in the situation? 
And from an early age, I learned, like, if there's a high social cost, like, I'm not going to show you who my true self is, and I'll wear whatever mask fits that situation. Right. The idea of, like, I'll be who I think you want me to be. Right, exactly. I totally get that. Yeah. And that was so powerful from such a young age because... Particularly, by the way, like, with girls. Right. Yeah, exactly. I did not feel like I was enough walking into anything. And so a lot of that also had to do with, like, I was a chameleon in who I hung around, right? So... I knew in order to to feel like I fit in, I had to hang out with this certain group or, you know, play this sport or do this thing. And, and that goes, by the way, it, it goes further. It's like, and listen to this kind of music and wear this sort right. of clothing and, you know, that way, a certain to, way. Totally. Right. Totally. And I, grew, I was very fortunate that I grew up in a town where to fit in meant, you know, to do well in school, to be really good at sports and to party. And so yeah. where did you, know, you grow up again? I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. Okay. You know, I was I was very fortunate because there were a lot of barriers in place that prevented me from really going entirely off the road. And, you know, I like what? So perfect example. The very first time I got drunk, my friends and I stole a car and totaled it. My father was friends with the resident state trooper in the town. So he helped clear up a lot of the legal stuff that was involved in that. We totaled it into a telephone pole and Mm. it was a, a real nightmare. And the car we had stolen uh, was actually a Range Rover, and the person who owned the car owned a Range Rover dealership, and it was his son and our, our group of our friends who stole the car. So right. he was like, look, I'll pay for the car. Your father handles the the legal situation, and that'll be that. We'll call it even. And so my parents freak out. They're in San Francisco. They're getting a call from the babysitter. The babysitter's like, I thought you were like 14. Like, I wasn't expecting to deal with this. And in my head, I'm just like, you know, it's going to be fine. And then I tell her, I'm like, look, don't worry about it. I'll call my parents. So like, here I am, 14, hammered. We just totaled a car, and I'm trying to like calm down my babysitter. And yeah. that's just kind of the way I approach. I like it. Just wasn't. And now, I didn't register. Did your parents kind of chalk it up to like, oh, like teenagers, like this is what they do? They chalked it up to my friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They chalked. They never really. They, <laughs> my parents didn't like to think it was me, and I'm so manipulative. I was like, look, I would never have been in the car. It was this person's dad's car. Like he suggested the whole thing. All this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just got roped into it. Exactly. You know, like I'm just an unwitting, you know, participant in all this. Had no idea. And, you know, very quickly throughout the next few years, my parents began to realize like, oh, it's Ben, you know. Yeah. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. So I have two brothers, one of whom is three years younger than me, another who we adopted when I was 13. So we never formally adopted him, but he moved in with us. Right. It, How old is he? He's four months older than me. So okay. we're in the same grade, played the same sports together, did everything together. So a lot of my story involves using with other people. And he was a person who was with me every step of the way. You know, I always thought, oh, I don't have a problem if I'm smoking weed with someone else. The yeah. thing was, it's just like I could always find somebody else to smoke with. So I never had to like engage with that or it was never even an issue in high school. Did he end up in recovery too? No. So he is not in recovery. It's to be determined if that's yeah. his path. But he but the relationship's still there obviously right the relationship's still there and every time i see him i make a conscious effort of like just showing that you know my life today is is healthy and i'm happy where i'm at Mm. and i think more than anything i'm really trying to push the attraction over promotion aspect with him and he'll ask questions and he's inquisitive about it but at this point what do you think is like your happiest memory drinking or drugging Mm. I loved the the persona I developed from it. So it's what not necessarily like? like, so it looked like, you know, I, I would show up to a party somewhere and people would be like, oh, Ben brought X, Y, or Z, right? So specific example is. You were the guy that had. Yeah, that had something, you yeah, know, and yeah, I always yeah. hung out with a group of guys that were the same way. You know, we'd show up to a random party where you didn't know any of the guys there. The girls had invited us. One of my buddies is hooking up with the girls uh, who's boyfriend owns the house you know we're getting in fights we're being annoying like that sort of stuff that Mm. persona i thought it was i love being a part of it you know showing up and sitting in a sauna buying an ounce of weed beforehand me and my buddy just being like oh the two of us are just going to finish this in three hours and just Mm. smoking the whole thing there people coming in and out like they're like oh my god i can't believe you're doing this in a sauna in a sauna, Why so it's a not sauna? on. It's not on. Oh, so oh, like, oh, okay. But it's just like you're in that boxed-in room. You can hot so, you know, box like, the I, room. I, I yeah. can't. From me to you right now, I couldn't see you. Right, right. <laughs> and so, and we're just sitting there, and like, I, and I thought it was so cool, you know. And here I am, like 16, 17, whatever it is, and I really felt like I'd made it at that point. And the stories were funny, and oftentimes didn't result in anything super negative. The problem is, is everyone else 
tended to leave those at the party. I woke up the next morning and did the exact same thing. You know, like right. from the very first time I smoked weed, I can't remember the first time I drank alcohol. I remember the first time I got drunk, but I can remember the first time I smoked weed and the first time I took Oxy and they're like super clear memories to me. And both of those were, it, it was not about partying. It was about like, well, this is a solution. You know, I actually have something here that can really help me. Yeah. And so weed in particular, the very first time I took, I smoked, I was like, I, I have to have this again. And I was so resistant. And like emotionally, when you say help me, like for me, help me means like get me out of my skin, push my fear level down, make me less anxious, make me say all the things that I think I want to say. Like, what does it mean to you? For me, it it quieted the noise. And it was the way I describe it is it was my best outfit. So if I woke (laughs) up in the morning and I just smoked, I was like, I had it. You know, I already had it going on. I was there. I was present. I didn't have to stress about like what you were thinking of me, what the girl over there was thinking of me, what I did two weeks ago, what was going to happen a month from now. Uh, which parent was I showing up to when I got home? You know, like, would my mom be drunk? Would my dad be around? Like, Did your parents drink? So my parents are both heavy drinkers. Uh, I don't think that's the reason I'm an alcoholic. And yeah. I grew up in a very loving household. They provided me everything I needed materially, showed up for me. They were the type of people who wanted to be at my games. They wanted to be in my practices. They wanted to do all of that. But I grew up in an environment where... I did not know, like, once alcohol was involved, I had no idea, like, which parent I'd be talking to. You know, it could be the mom that's really fun and really nice. It could be the mom that's passing out on the couch. Or it could be, you know, the two of my parents, like, communicating, which to them meant just fighting and having this blow-up thing where, right. like, I'm bringing my younger brother upstairs and we're hanging out in my bedroom. So we're Your parents separated, I'm guessing? No. They're still so, together. Still together. Okay. And actually, they're, they're happier than ever now, which is the funniest part what of What do they do? Go to therapy? They went to a ton of therapy. I think also my dad realizing that my mom was like needed something, right? So when mm. she when she had the affair, she made it clear to my father that like something was missing from her life. And I think a big part of my dad is he's a big provider. He always wants people to feel like cared for and mm-hmm. in his line of work, he was traveling a lot. So I think to some extent, and I don't want to speak for him, but to some extent he looked at it as look, I'm I'm providing for everyone. I'm doing all this. Like I'm busy. Like that's enough kind of. Yeah. And so when he'd come back it kind of be on his terms and he didn't really look to her to see, you know, what were some of her aspirations. It's funny. They both met in banking and my mom gave up her entire career to raise us. So yeah. when my mom and dad first met, they were peers. Yeah. They were in the same role. So that must've been hard for my mom to be, you know, in her mid thirties to see her husband starting to do really well and pick up on all this stuff. And then have my dad come home and be like, all right, like, you know, where's the launch? Like, where's this? Where's X, Y, Z. And so over time, and the they, resentment grew. Right. And they and they didn't grow up in families that communicated either. Yeah. You know, back to the original, like th- that friend group I'd surrounded myself with has, it's become very clear to me that they're my real friends. You know, they showed yeah. up for me the whole time. They went to my father once they found out. So, you know, I'm in that intervention. They hand me that, yeah. that urine test. And did you do it? Did yeah. you? Par- well, and I lied to them. So they're, they're like, so Ben, you're, you, you haven't been doing opiates, right? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. And they're like, all right, so you're going to be willing to piss in this cup yeah and i say yes and but, i and i'm a hot, deadpan straight face they were just i was like yeah no I, I haven't been taking them i'm gonna pass this right now yeah and so i went and took it and failed right, of course. and knowing and, you would fail yeah exactly <laughs> knowing i would fail and and the thing with it was that i was like look it's totally worth it to lie right now even though there's like a two percent chance that this urine test is faulty right like fuck it i'll lie right right and and, but that's the way I was, you know, I was so indignant, you know, up till the very last, like till the very end, you know, and there were situations where I remember my mom called me from the bank. I'd been stealing her debit card and going to the bank and withdrawing a ton mm-hmm. of money. And she's like, Ben, you know, my balance is really low and it, I see all these withdrawals. I know I wasn't making them. Was it you? And I was like, no, no, no. All the way to the point where she had the bank tellers pull the tapes. Oh, so uh, how embarrassing is that for my mom to walk into our local bank? It's not like we're living in Manhattan where it's like she can show up to a random bank. She's never going to see these tellers again. These are people that are in our community, people that she knows. Yeah. You know, and I pushed her all the way. To so the she like point. watched the tape yeah. with you. No, oh, I wasn't there, but she, yeah, of me. Yeah. Withdrawing the money. So what happens after you fail the test? So I fail the test. I. Your friends. Are my just... friends. My friends at this point don't know what to do. They yeah. make the right call, which is they go to my dad. They did. Okay. But in, in our little like, you know, young friend group, I'm like, they're going to fucking snitch on me. They're going to rat me right. out, da, 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 all that stuff. When in reality, it's just like they're just good people. You know, like, they cared about me. You know? So they go to my dad. Uh, they explain the whole situation. They're like, look, we know we had him take a test. We know he's lying. We care about him. We need to do something. Father tries to send me to an 
inpatient rehab in Florida or, you know, wherever. I'd already been to rehab once at this point. You had. But it it was a very limited rehab. I went to Silver Hill in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. Fancy. Fancy. But I stayed for a little over 48 hours. People probably travel across the country to go to Silver Hill. You probably drove, what, half an hour? Yeah, I, dr- I drove was, about an hour. <laughs> it was too close. Right. So it was so easy for you to spring out of there if you had gone to Minnesota or something. Like, you couldn't have done is, that. Though, well, I probably could have gotten my parents to do it. You think so? I really do. And th- they're, they were so loving, and they, they just didn't know. You know, they had no education at the time, uh, no Al-Anon, nothing like that. They... Well, they're obviously they're let they're from they're smoking weed, yeah, so exactly. they don't know. They have they have no idea. The network around them really wasn't helping them too much either. Like not from the perspective of like leading them astray, just nobody really had experience with it, or not a ton of information. And so my parents didn't have anyone to really turn to. And fortunately, I got introduced to an outpatient rehabilitation program back in Connecticut. I begged my dad. I was like, "Look, if I fail any other tests, I'll go to inpatient. But just let me try this outpatient program." Right. And, and by a- the way, this like totally reminds me. So I spent a year in AA just not taking opiates, but yeah. drinking all the time. Yeah. Right. And so and my, and my parents were like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Right. Like they don't know. They have no idea. Right. They want to believe me. You know, my parents have always been. And also, by the way, players. I'm this is a major distinction. I'm like 33, 34 <laughs> years old. You know, you're yeah. still pretty young. Yeah. And that's and they want me to go to school. You know, at this point, yeah. it's like, let's get Ben back in school because. They're having to tell people like, oh, so like Ben took a year off from Bucknell. Like what's going on there? You know, and didn't have the heart to tell him like, oh, you know, he's in treatment for opiates. Right. Because I come from a small town where reputation matters. My Mm -hmm. mom's on the board of ed. My younger brother's still at school. Yeah. And that high school, you know, with the same teachers and stuff. So it must have been really embarrassing for them to tell people like, oh, yeah, Ben got caught pawning. We think it's embarrassing. And and this is a major flash forward. But like and this is all about perception. Like we view that as shameful. Right. But a lot of people would be like he's struggling. Right. That's okay. Right. Like, we're all allowed to struggle. But, I, I mean, obviously, I get it. I get it. It was really eye-opening to, to come back and to start to really put my own limits on my sobriety in certain ways. So, for example, when I started working with this therapist at this outpatient clinic, he was the first person in my life. He was like, look, I don't care how much you use. I really don't. I want you to be happy and healthy. And if you think that you can have a healthy relationship with weed, then let, let's explore that. Let's find a way to do that. Okay. So in my head, I'm like, yeah, you know, this guy's like, he's, he's I'm buying into this, you know, and yeah. so, exactly. And he's telling my parents, he's like, look, you know, just trust me, trust the process. Well, you know, he, they put me on Suboxone, so I'm not, I'm not withdrawing, which is great. Right. I don't feel the physical effects of that. I am seeing a doctor frequently. So all of these good checks and balances are in place and I'm doing urine tests all the time. So my parents feel more comfortable with the structure and I enjoy it cause I still get to smoke weed. Right. So I don't actually have to face that thinking, right? I don't, right. Ha- I don't have to give all this up, but he slowly but surely starts to put these ideas into my head of he's like okay so why don't you set a a goal for yourself like how would you like to control your drinking right or how would you like to control your right your substance abuse and so slowly but surely i would set these goals and then i'd actually buy into them what would a goal be a goal would be i don't want to smoke weed before 4 p.m okay could not do it no could not do it you know i would i it it was unbearable the feeling of like i'd wake up every morning feeling sentenced to my day and the only way to break free from that was to have a substance. By the right? way, and that's how I, I was on Suboxone too. And for people who don't know, it's based, Suboxone is a, is a strip. It's like a Listerine strip right, right. that like it blocks opiates from working. Right. And so every time I would take it, I would get depressed because like you're just – you cut yourself off for the day. Right. And so I knew that I could turn to weed and that would be an easy way out. And my relationship with that was – but no one was giving me a hard time for that, right? Yeah. So it was easy for me to get to and – I still could semi-function at this point. I'm working at a marketing firm in the hometown that I'm from. And it was a family friend who was really just doing me a favor until I went back to school. Right. And what I would do is I would constantly like time it, right? So now I'm getting tricky where it's like, okay, so now I'm taking urine tests less frequently. It's only when I see the doctor to get the Suboxone. It's every two weeks. I can use opiates for this many days. Yeah. This, yeah you know, the like window that, was there. That whole thing starts, right? And so now I'm trying to control it with it, control, control my weed use with this counselor. I'm also planning all the stuff. So very quickly. And by the way, like my numbers, like my uh, opiate use skyrocketed once I discovered Suboxone. Right. Because you don't have to withdraw anymore. Right. Right? It's like this get out of jail free card. Exactly. And, and everyone knows. So now I don't need to – the biggest struggle at this point is the money. Yeah. Because I'm still tied to my parents for financial stuff. So – Outside of the money, it's like, look, I, I have all this structure in place, and as long as I control it, right, as long as I manage well enough, I will be able to 
control this end result. No one will ever have to know I'm using. No one will get hurt. And eventually I'll be out of this program. And I, I didn't really think much more than that. It was like, all right, day to day, this this I can make this work. Yeah. I, I'll never forget. It was the 4th of July. I was reaching out to my dealer who usually was able to provide me with the perks. And I was the type of person where I was like, I'd rather just pay extra and not have to go to certain places. Mm-hmm. That's how I, I started off. And so... He would always upcharge me and make me meet him in ridiculous places. And so I convinced my girlfriend at the time that we have to go to this Walmart to go buy something. She's like, oh, that's actually fine. It's 4th of July. Like, I'll go get something. So she's with a friend. Right. I'm driving them around. We go to this Walmart. I meet this kid in the Walmart bathroom. Mentally, I'm like, I've got the I've got the perks for the whole 4th of July weekend. This is going to be great. Yeah, yeah. I show up there and he's like, he's like, I don't have any, I don't have any perks. And I'm like, dude, what, what the fuck? Why did like, you why, meet why me? Why did you meet me here? And he's like, well, I have heroin. Mm. And... So that was the first time where I was like, fuck it. Of course. Yeah, you know. And what, so like that, a powder? The, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I was just going to sniff it. And sure. he, he explained the whole thing. And I had no choice in that matter at that point. I was way too deep into the the progression and the thought. Like, I'd already attached myself to this idea that I was going to have substances for this week. Oh, there's no saying no at that point. Yeah, I'm You I'm could pull it. out anything. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm like, sure. I'm in it. Exactly. And so, but again... This is all going on at the same time where I'm seeing this therapist and like starting to set my own boundaries. So it's like the courts aren't pushing me. My parents really aren't pushing me that much at this point. It's all what does Ben actually want to do? And like heroin was not on that list. But very quickly, I start doing heroin while at the office at work. I'm blowing lines in the bathroom. Um, It it became very unmanageable very quick. But a big part of my story is this like ability to put up this, this ego and this resilient front where like simultaneously to me doing all this stuff, not really getting sober, kind of just being in this no man's land for a year while I'm out of, when I got kicked out of Bucknell and before going back to school, I start working with the same people who helped me get into college Mm -hmm. uh, for undergrad and they start sending out applications. I write my whole college essay about my time in Silver Hill being sober there and my right. sober life now. The whole thing's bullshit. You know, I've made I made it all up. You're right, you're still using. I'm still using. Right. And I get into <laughs> NYU. Yeah. So in my head I'm like, "See, like this can't be it's that all bad. Working. Yeah, this is all fine." And so I end up going to to school at NYU, but I told my therapist at this point. Now I just You must be lying wanted, through your teeth to the therapist. Lying through my teeth, and at this point I really wanted to stop smoking. I wanted to stop Everything. Everything. Okay. And so I tell them, like, look, by the time Why, I go, by the way? Because I saw people around me who had given up everything and whose lives got better. So I was- Had you gone to an AA situation. meeting at this point? Yeah. So one of those friends who gave me an intervention brought me to a meeting. I blew a perk right before I went in. Yeah. Uh, another one, actually, it's a really funny story, but- You would the, snort the Percocets? Yeah. It's a lot of powder. It's a lot. It's a lot. It, uh, yeah, my my nose definitely doesn't thank me for that. Yeah. Now. But um, I- found myself in a relationship with a girl who had two older brothers and her father get sober in the time I was dating her. Wow. And one of the older brothers I used pretty extensively with, you know, like we were both very secretive about it, but went to the same dealers and stuff. And so I saw him go off to rehab and he was in my mind worse than me. He'd get violent. I'd see him like punch holes in walls and, you know, be kind of this destructive force in the whole family. He goes off to rehab, comes back and is a totally different guy, totally different guy. So, now it's like God using my defects in a lot of ways to, to kind of get me to push into things. So it's like, I really want to make this relationship work with this girl. Mm-hmm. And these older brothers are guys that I actually respect, you know, and want to do something with. And one of them goes, <laughs> he's like asking me about my plan, about how I'm smoking weed and stuff. And finally, he's just like, you know, Ben, how free do you want to be? I'm like, fuck you, man. I'm free. You have no idea. Like, I'm the one who still gets to smoke weed. You yeah. don't have to give up the whole thing. And then in my head, like, I couldn't get that out of my head. But they took me to meetings How free do you want to be? Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. It it stuck with me. And they took me to meetings. And so I had some exposure, but I wasn't taking it seriously. And I go to NYU. I told my therapist I'm going to be done with everything by the time I get to NYU. And that was the first real promise where I was like, I'm going to do this one. You know, I'm going to control this. I'm going to do this. I show up at NYU. I'm still picking up weed. I'm still doing all this stuff. I remember vividly one time I'm walking around the Tompkins Square Park area at, like, looking for perks. Yeah. Are your parents scared? Like you're living in New York City, you're an opiate addict, you're on your own. Dude, they didn't know, man. They just they didn't know any better. They didn't, they didn't know any better. Mm. And I was so I'm so good at putting up that mat. Like I just didn't let anyone in. You didn't, didn't let like I looked physically terrible. Yeah. You didn't. No I, no, I looked terrible. I can show you a photo, and I, I looked shitty. Yeah. But my they just didn't know how to deal with me, man. I put people at arm's length all the time, and they they did the absolute best they could. But part of them was probably also like, look, we're just I can't do this. You know, I remember there were certain times where my dad would be like, look, I don't want you around your little brother. So wow. 
there's that like yeah. that has to like cut deeply. Yeah, though. it did. And when it, especially as somebody who like I, I the relationship I have with my younger brother is something that's so near and dear to me. And I actually just got to see him present his senior thesis at Fordham on Monday. And all, all I had to do was show up. You know, yeah. I just showed up there. I took the day off from work. I was there. I got to spend time with him. I heard him and. But like when your dad says, "Hey, listen, like I don't want you around your younger brother." Yeah, that, like that, what? How do you react like to that? It as a victim, you know. I feel like, oh, you if if only you understood, mm. you know, and like all the stuff I have to go through and duh, like all this bullshit when, you know, like you're doing this to me. Yeah, you know? I'm this, sure this your dad was like, "What?" A meant it, but two was like trying to throw. Th- things out the wall to yeah. see what might stick. Yeah, and I but I think also part of it was he he we already the whole family struggled to communicate. Yeah. So he's telling this to me. Not he's not saying this in like I don't want you to go see your brother. He's he's really telling me. You know, he's he yelling it. at yeah, he's yeah. and he's not this is in the middle of a argument, you know? So it's not like one of those things where he comes up to me, he's like, Hey, I want you to stay away from your younger brother. It's like we're fighting, you know, yeah. and he's throwing stuff like and you're that. You were close out. with your younger brother. Yeah. He looked up to you, I'm sure. Yeah. And I mean I was also a huge part of the reason he started using, you know, me and my group of friends. And so like smoking weed, whatever. And so that yeah, that really cut deep. But so when I'm at NYU and when I'm in the city, like they think I'm going back to school, I'm doing all this stuff. The therapist yeah. is telling them all this that like things are good. And I I'm miserable. You know, I'm not, I have no friends around. I'm not making any friends really at school. Yeah. I don't want to make friends at school. Now I just want to uh, smoke weed and do drugs in my apartment. You know, my right. little studio apartment in the East Village. And so so what does the, the end look like? So the end looks like it's my... I assume we're getting pretty close. We're close. We're yeah. close. So that's January. I started yeah. in the beginning of January. My sober date is May. Okay. So I had that probably three month period of like just being in New York and New York, just bringing me down emotionally. Like I could not rationalize what I was doing. I was like, obviously I'm not having fun doing this. Like I'm really sick. Like I started to really feel that way. And I was in this really codependent and unhealthy relationship with this girl who's up at school in Connecticut. And so I don't see her and I'm detached in that way. And she really, you know, for as sick as our relationship was, she really wanted me to get sober. And I'm so grateful for a lot of the things she did to get me sober, one of which was she would ask me, she'd be like, all right, so what meetings are you going to in the city? Because obviously she knows about AA, yep. her brother's her father. She has exposure and I've told her I'm going. And so I look online and I'm like, oh, I've, I've been going to this meeting. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's funny. One of my brothers has a friend from rehab who goes to that meeting. He'll see you there. And so now I'm like, fuck, I got to go. Right. You know? So I show up to NYU. It's my first meeting in the city. It's the NYU 1230. It's a anniversary meeting and everyone's serving pizza and looks happy. And I feel comfortable there because it's part of the school I'm going to. Sure. You know, it's, it's all it's all right there. So, you know, they're asking like, all right, so how many days is everyone have going around? And I'm very like checked yeah, in, what checked am I out. Not really there. I'm high at the time. I'm, I'm showing up high. And I'm like, fuck it. So. They're like, okay, you know, how, and everyone counting days, you know, please raise your hand, whatever, and how many days you have going through, through. And I'm like, hi, I'm Ben. I'm an alcoholic, and I have 53 days. I'm just like made <laughs> up a random number. Made up a random number. I was like, dude, I can't, I can't be, I can't tell them I have zero days. 53 is just an odd enough number yeah. to sound legit. To sound legit. Yeah. And, and, but that's my whole life. You know? And I picked up on stuff like that so early where it's like, all right, what can I say, right? Yeah. And I also... I don't think I, I don't know if I really believe that I was an alcoholic, but I was like, look, if I say I'm not, I'm not going to fit into this group and they're going to think, they're going to know that I have zero days, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just said it. Yep. But that's the power of like, I, again, that's like God using these, these defects of character that I have to my own benefit where it's like, I'll do anything to fit in. Yeah. But now I'm trying to fit in in a group that's like actually benefiting me, right? Now the next time you come, you have to be like, I had 53 days. Shooting, I couldn't remember my day count. It's a made up day. So I'm like, fuck the, this, like... This person over here definitely knows that I actually had 56 instead of right, 55 right. or whatever, and whatever I said. And, like, so unmanageable. You know, I went on sober trips where we went up to Lake George, and I'm hanging out with this group of sober people. That's They're all really trying to help me, and I'm starting to make friends. And I remember going up there, and I'm trying to stay sober for that weekend. But my brother lives, like, at the time, he lives 20 minutes away from this girl's house. So okay. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go meet up with my brother quick, say hello, and I'll come back, and you'll get to meet him. And I go over there, and I rip a couple dabs. You know, I'm smoking yeah. weed. Yeah. And then I come back, put in the rotos. Nobody knows. And they meet my brother. And my brother obviously doesn't say anything. But, like, I'm up on this sober trip doing stuff like that. Right. Mm. 
And I had a moment where I, I did so much lying in it. Yeah, so which I've talked about in here, just like so much fake day counting, so yeah. much. So I, I, I think I'm talking about this. I once qualified having like ninety a fake ninety three yeah, days. Told, I, yeah, and like qualified, right? You know, just insanity. And and I totally felt comfortable doing it. I didn't feel yeah. guilty. That was the craziest part at the time. It just it my bar for what I was willing to accept was was so low that to me it was like, look, I'm this is totally fine. Yeah. Like this. And this goes back to the original chameleon stuff. Right. Exactly. This like, is it in a nutshell. The rules apply to these people, but not to me. Yeah. Like I'm unique. I don't need to be doing this. And then, but again, now I'm, I'm really starting to get that hook of like, okay, it's not these external things that need Ben to get sober. It's like, I need to get sober. Like I don't feel okay with who I am and what I'm doing. So I had one situation where I had strung together four days, which for me at that time was a really fucking good stretch. Long time. Totally. Feel good. And I go home to Connecticut to see my girlfriend and to spend time with family there. And she thinks I have like 14 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm already lying to her. But I come back. We go out to dinner. We have a great night. Uh, things are going really well. I realize like I'm going to sleep with her. Mm-hmm. And without even really thinking about it, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go down and grab a glass of water. Next second, I look at myself. I'm ripping a bong. And... It was just like it was one of those surreal moments where I just started crying because it it just hit me where it was like I'm absolutely powerless over this. I have no ability to stop right now. Like I I really wanted to at that point. Yeah. And up till that moment, I was totally fine. Things were great. I had a great night. You know, it was all going really but well. Like and then I, I couldn't it. fucking stop. You know, like that being that intimate with somebody without having the crutch that I'd had since fourteen was not not okay with me. And looking back, I can you know see a lot of my behaviors beforehand. But at the time I was like, I had no idea how I'd ended up at this place. And so she obviously figures it out. Mm-hmm. We end up breaking up. I'm super despondent. And now not only do I not have drugs and alcohol, but I don't have this codependent relationship I've relied on for so long. And like that whole, that really kind of- And by the way, up. I just because I like when people talk about this. So like when you say codependent relationship, what do you mean by that? So we- we're in a relationship where my emotional stability was entirely dependent upon her validation. Right. So, All of my happiness or sadness is riding on this one person. Right. Yeah. You know, to the point where I would, you know, she'd call me crying from Connecticut, from some fraternity party she went to, something happened to her. She's just basically drunk and, yeah. you know, she's okay. But, and I'm in Newport, Rhode Island, hammered, and I get in my car and drive up there to her. Right. You know, those sorts of, like, just complete lack of perspective on what healthy boundaries were, who I was supposed to be in a relationship, what I should be doing. My whole identity was tied up in, in this thing. Mm-hmm. And I started working with a new sponsor after he 12-stepped me after a meeting, and I didn't realize that's what he was doing. But I what did, not really what did, what did that look like, him 12-stepping you? So we go to uh, Who Kitchen. Down, okay. Yeah, Love that right, place. Yeah, really cool spot. And... You know, I'm trying to eat healthy because, of course, I have to look good now, right? I don't have the girl, all these other things. Right. So, and I look like shit, man. I, I, it was, it was, it must have been comical to see like what I, how much I was trying to change who I was at that moment physically. Like I was just so involved in it. And so, the person who I ended up choosing as a sponsor like looked really good physically, had a mm. lot of these things, um, went to an Ivy League school undergrad, like had all the materialistic shit that would attract me at that time, right? right? And he sits me down and we're having a good conversation and he knows what I'm doing. He's seen the way I'm interacting with people at the group. He knows the sponsor I have. And he's just like, dude, you're not working the steps, are you? You're not doing any of this. And I was, I was pretty honest with him. I was like, well, you know, we kind of do stuff kind of, yeah. And like, I feel like I'm kind of putting it in. And I call people and I go to meetings, man. You know, yeah. I go to meetings. That's like, that's what this is. And he just looks at me and he's like, you're going to relapse. And with him, I, again, like that kind of, that little bit of intuition, I was like, he's right. It landed. He, he, it landed and it's just, it cut me so deep because he saw straight through me, you know, for whatever reason, he was able to just call that out and not in a way where it's like, he's like, he wasn't trying to fix me or trying to convince me to do anything. He's just like, look, this is what's going to happen. So for the first I think that for that, people like us, who, the chameleon syndrome, we'll call it. When, like, people see through it, it's like, oh, my God. Like, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Right. Yeah, 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 because I've spent so long putting up these walls. Right. And like you were able to just peer right through them. Yep. It's not working? No. Yeah, exactly. And I was so resentful at him for saying that. I was like, how could you say this to somebody, like, who's new and counting days and da 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 da, da. And then 10 minutes later, I'm like, will you be my sponsor? Yeah. Because you know, I'm attracted to that. I'm the type of person where it's like I – 
hate structure, but I crave it, you know, and I create it all the time, whether it's good or bad. So it just hit me where it's like, this is what I, if I'm going to take this seriously, this is what I need to do. Yeah. And he was brutal, man. He, I, I love the guy. He, at the time I, I I'm obsessed with finding a girl, right? I need to, I need somebody to complete me. I need mm. somebody to complete me. That was my big thing. And He's just looks at me. He's like, Ben, you've absolutely nothing to offer a girl right now. And, <laughs> and they say, they always suggest no one date in the first year, which right. uh, everyone ignores. Exactly. And in my head, I'm like, I can't do that. Like, what, what, how, how else am I going to receive validation? What am I going to do? Right. And he says, Ben, you have absolutely nothing to offer a girl right now. And I'm like, well, that's not really true. Like, I go out to nice dinners. You know, we do these things. Like, I will take them on dates and get them. Th- and he's like, Ben, your, your dad's money doesn't count as something to offer in a relationship. Right. And that also wow, really this cut guy's deep. brutally yeah, honest. Yeah, and it just cut so deep. And, I, and then at that point, now I'm like really starting to beg. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what if I meet the girl in my dreams in my first year? Like, according to this rule, I'm not going to be able to, mm-hmm. to date her. Like, what happens in that scenario? And he's like, Ben, you should seriously get on your knees every morning and pray that you don't meet that girl in the first year of your sobriety because she's going to want nothing to do with you. She's like... He, the girl of your dreams does not want the person you are right now. Exactly. And that that sh- totally opened me up to a process that oh, that's so has good. gone on forever. Yeah, it, it helped me so much. And I started to date myself. What, so, that, what do you mean? Instead of my whole life, I'm doing all these things because other people value them. So it's like, oh, that, it seems like everybody likes this idea or this date or this activity, whatever it is. Like, I'm going to try and be good at that or I'm going to try and do that, right? But it never really made me happy and it didn't make me feel fulfilled. So it was all to be – eventually I'm starting to figure out like, all right, what does Ben actually like to do? Yeah. What, what, if I was to go take myself on a date, what would I want to do? So what did you do? So I'd go to concerts. I would travel with close friends who respected my sobriety, who understood what I was doing, weren't going out to clubs at night, weren't meeting women. Right. But we're just having fun, you know? And So you, a lot of the, involved really, you truly put the dating on the sidelines. I mean – I shouldn't say not a hundred percent. I still, I still tried to meet people, right. but it was more, it was with an open mind from the perspective that like, look, this isn't going to work out unless I work on myself. Like now I'm not a victim in this. Like I need to actually start to take some action. And I saw a ton of that through the fourth step with him also, where it was like my whole life, I'd felt like I'd been victimized by all these people. I go through this list and it's one after another of just like constant unrealistic expectations on everyone around me, including myself. Mm. And someone I, had said to me the other day, they were like, who's not in the program. They were like, you know, you guys throw around like these terms that I don't know. And so like they said, I don't even know. People say four stuff, four stuff. They're like, what does that even mean? What did that like? Could you just briefly talk about like what that was for you? So to me, that was a reality check. Okay. If I'm explaining it to somebody who's outside of the program, it's like a real honest look at my behavior that's led me to this point And some of the common underlying factors that led me to all those behaviors or that pushed me to to do the things I did. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, totally disregarding the things that happened to me because, of course, you know, those happen. But it's like, all right, so what part did I play in leading to that result? Right. Right. And my a big part of my fourth step was I would go to the same people for the same things. And these people weren't capable of, of giving it to me, whatever it was. Right. Like, for it was example. Like so, like, I would go to a friend who wasn't available, emotionally available, right? And expect them to be emotionally available or show up for me at times right, right, where, right. and that happened millions of times, you know, and it could be my mom, my dad, whatever. Like I wanted them to be something they weren't. Yes. And every time they fell short of that, it gave me that, that little re- edge where I was like, resentment. see, yeah, exactly. See, like you're not able to show up for me the way I need somebody to show up for me. And, and, and to bring it home and people say, so what was my part in that? What do you say? So my part in that is that in those specific examples were, were these expectations that I was putting on everybody and the inability to like look inward, right? Where it's like, all right, so why don't you set a healthy boundary with that person? You know, yeah. or why don't you take some action to change this? And oftentimes the craziest part about it too was I had built this whole reality where people were against me, things weren't working out, no one understood me and no one cared. And then I'd go to some of these people and I'd just have really easy open conversations where I'm just like, look, this is kind of what I'm looking for in this situation. And here, here's what I need to feel okay. And a ton of those people were able to give that to me. Yeah, They just didn't realize that that's what I was looking for because I was so on guard all the time. I would never ask, 
right? And the last thing I made people feel like is like, oh, Ben needs something from me mm. because I like feeling indebted to. And not only that, but like I also like the feeling of like I can handle this all on my own and I don't need you. Right. And so I wanted you to feel like, you know, you owed me something. Right. Not the other way around at all. And so once I started just being more open and honest about that, it really enabled me to develop deep relationships and to start to understand, okay, if I want my life to change, I can't keep acting on these same behaviors. And that's really the the goal of the inventory is for me to see things that I've been doing throughout my entire life that are not – conducive to living a useful and sober life moving forward. Yeah. And that victim mentality. It's like in my case, right? Like the reason that we make these lists, which are quite extensive, is because you see the same thing pop up again and again and again and again. And so it's so apparent. So it's like, oh my God, I do all these things because of a fear of loneliness or fear whatever. And it's like, oh, oh, that's like this pervasive thing that's been like infiltrated my entire life. Right. And the two fears that if I was to synthesize my entire four step, the two fears that were really fundamental to the way I treated every relationship and the way I walked through life were the fear that I'm fundamentally unlovable mm-hmm. and the fear that I'm not taken care of. Yeah. And every single resentment stemmed from that in some way, shape or form. Finding a lot of peace in whenever I'd feel upset or something would happen, I'd look at it and I'd be like, all right, so am I acting on either of those right now? And are those true? Right. That was a right. big thing. Are these irrational or is this right. true? Right, exactly. Are these real fears? Yeah. I, I do have, you know, I, there were a couple on my fourth step of like family members passing away or stuff coming up in life or not being able to be perfect at everything 100% of the time, right? That was an actual fear I put mm-hmm. in my fourth step because I have this uh, ideal self where I'm never messing anything up. And it's like, yeah, th- those are real fears because they're not attainable. Like things are going to happen, right? Yeah. Things are going to happen in life. Things are going to happen in my family. Like those are real fears. Are you reacting to them in a way that, is rational. Is rational. And the answer was right. always no. Which goes right. eventually to the idea of like letting go and turning right. it over. Right. Exactly. That acceptance that I just lacked in every aspect of my life. I was the type of person who constantly wanted control. And did you make, uh, obviously you, you made your amends and you, as you went through your steps and like you made them to your parents. I'm yeah. assuming that was one of the early ones. I was. But tell me about that. So the amends with my mom was really profound in a lot of ways because the obvious amends were the, you know, stealing her credit card, forcing her to drive me to pick up drugs before I went to rehab, throwing parties at her house, crashing their cars, doing a bunch of damage, really. Yeah. But those are all easy to point to. So then when you get to, there's a part in the amends where you get to, you know, is there anything I've left out? Right. Right. And she gave me the most profound feedback out of anyone I've done an amends with where she said, yeah, you, you take your anxiety out on other people. And that one was really powerful because that's something I can continue to do in sobriety. It's easy for me to not pawn stuff. Take it out on them how? So she used a specific example. She used a specific example that was really helpful. I think I do that too, by the way. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I still do it. And I think it's – for me, it wasn't necessarily mean, but it was just like I controlled the situation around me because I needed to feel okay. Mm. So a great example is like I'm going to work at that marketing firm where I'm at and I'm looking for a collared shirt in the morning. And I can't figure, I can't find this shirt that I was like looking for. And so I've rushed down the stairs. I'm like, mom, where's the shirt? Like, where is it? I need to wear it to work. And she's like, Ben, I don't know. Like, you'll have to look for it. And if not, wear a different one. I sprint back upstairs, grab my stuff. Couldn't find the shirt, run out, go to work. She used that example because at that time, the brother who he'd taken in had his biological sister coming and visiting. Right. So they're all sitting downstairs talking. I don't say hi to anyone there. I don't say hello. I don't say like. I'm just, mom, where's this shirt? Da, 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 run back upstairs and leave, you know? And like, that's where like, and this is over a, a, a shirt that I'm trying to wear to work, right. right? So it's like that level of disconnect where if I'm feeling anxious, it does not matter what's going on around me. Like somebody needs to fix that, right? We are or, the center of the universe in that moment. Right, exactly. And so that's something that I could, I can continue to do in sobriety. So I'm trying to to be very conscious of that. And that feedback that early on was super helpful because it was something, it was a bar that I could sort of measure, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm stressed about the fact that I have this exam in two weeks. Like, how is that affecting me when I'm at this football game with my brother right now? So that's a good segue because I I said, bring two subject matters that you wanted to talk about today, right? And I believe one of them was, it was humility, but there was a hook to it. What was it? Right. So actually, this is a quote that I heard somebody say in a meeting and it, it really stuck with me where... It's seek humility or it will be brought to you. Okay. 
And that was one of those moments in that amends where it, it was brought to me. You know, I walked into that feeling like I'd been super thorough and I'd done all of this digging into my past. And, you know, my mom hit me with something that I, I was not prepared for and I had not considered. Yeah. But that phrase in general has, has been so true for me where as soon as I start to feel like I'm the one running the show and things are going really well and I get something, if I don't find ways to humble myself, the universe is going to humble me. So I had never, here's what that means to me. So I was, I'm thinking about like, I had never, I think said a prayer in my life, maybe like waiting for STD results to come back. Right, right, right. But like never a real (laughs) prayer, right? And I remember when my sponsor said you should do it, my initial prayers would be, I would walk down the street in the morning to go get coffee and I would sort of like look up at the sky and like murmur a few things. And people talked about like getting on your knees and praying. I was like, that seems like so drastic. Yeah. Right. But that's what where humility comes in. It's the idea of like humbling yourself. Right. And then making the distinction between humility and humiliation. Right. Which also was a big thing for me. But like, how do you seek humility? Are there ways to seek humility without getting on your knees and praying, do you think? I think so. And I think for me, it's the way I approach my life. So I used to walk into situations and be like, look, if I just manage this well enough, I'm going to get the result I want. And there's a lot of power in that because it taught me from an early age, like, look, show up prepared Mm -hmm. and you can probably get what you want. Right. The reality of life is that you can do everything that's within your control and still not end up with this result that I've craved or wanted. Right. And I've also found that in sobriety, I don't know what's best for me. I'm so grateful I didn't get everything I wanted when I was 18 because I would be dead. Mm, And so for me to walk into a situation and think I have complete control over this. My sponsor is always saying that phrase, like we're out of the results business, Yeah, which I always forever would come back with, but you don't understand. Yeah. Right. But like, it's so true. And like that, that idea of like expectations are just a future resentment. Also, just like, it's very difficult to, to sort of, I love what you said. Like if I'm prepared enough, I'm, if I'm this enough, I'll get what I want. And it just, it doesn't work that way. Right. And if I approach life that way, then there's a lot of times where I do get what I want yeah. and things do work out, right? So then it builds up that sense of self and totally. ego where it's like, see, I, I'm doing this, right? And then something comes out of left field and just humbles me. And my sobriety has been a constant cycle of that where, you know, for example, let's use work, right? So I use the tools of AA. I have a great network of guys around me who are very experienced in you know, working for a living, showing up for their lives and they give me great advice and I take it and I'm doing well and I'm getting the results I want to at work and slowly but surely I'm like, yeah, see, I'm getting all these results. Mm -hmm. And I forget that it's that advice and those tools that enabled me to get to that point. So now I'm really pushing it, right? And the people at work like when I go to meetings and do all of that, they don't realize that that's what's enabling me to show up for work in the way that I am, but whatever I'm doing, they like, right? And then right. once I let go of my program a little bit, now I'm starting to become a little more egotistical, thinking I'm running the show, behaving differently at work. And Well, I cash my chips in sometimes when things are good. I never cash my chips in when things are bad. Never. That's when I double down on program. Right, right. And so I find myself in situations where I do something out of ego that I really shouldn't be doing because I'm no longer connected to those things that brought me to that point, right. and I'm humbled. And then I'm brought down all the way back to where I started, if not a little before, where it's like, oh, now I'm the worst ever and I can't believe I did this and how could I have, you know, let this happen to me at three years in the program or whatever it is. And I also, I have a knack for making a situation way bigger than it needs to be. Right. And so something my sponsor really helped me with was he was like, look, everything in your life should be on a scale of one to 10. So 10 being, you know, my parents pass away in a plane crash. I am financially responsible for my brother's school, all this stuff, having to deal with all these life situations and um, really having to like take ownership of all of this. Like that's like that's a situation that on the scale of one to 10, that's a 10, mm-hmm. right? 10 in terms of extremity. Extremity. Well, yeah. and just in, in severity. severity. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like what, what you should actually worst be worrying about. Worst case scenario. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's total worst case scenario. Um, also another 10 is me going out drinking. That's, yeah. that's a real 10. So when I treat all these little ones and twos at work or in my romantic relationship or whatever it is, like where it's, it's really not a big deal, but I treat them like a, a five or a six. 
when an actual five or a six comes to me, I'm not going to be ready for it, right? Mm. Because I've been making all these little things into this huge problem. And that's been something that I've really been working on recently in sobriety because it all goes back to that fact of like, am I taken care of? Yeah. Right. And I'm so, going to steal that. Right. That's and good. Wonderful. It is. And it's it's been super helpful for me because then I literally get to put a number on. I'm like, look, this is something I'm not going to remember in two weeks. This is easily a one. So yeah. why am I giving it the... Why am I giving it the energy and the stress level of a five or a six? It puts things in perspective. Right. And a lot of it's been, it's been very, very clear to me through my sponsor that a lot of it's just because I just like thinking about myself. So mm. I like thinking this is going to be the end of the world because it just enables me to go into that obsessive thinking and to not like just be present where I'm at, which is like honestly always good. Yeah. What was the second thing you wanted to talk about? So I really like the idea of perspective and it goes back to the conversation we were having about the four step where... Up until I had done my forcep, I was not living in reality. I was living in a world where everyone was out to get me. I woke up in the morning and it was me versus you. Mm-hmm. And I treated people like ATMs at times. You know, my parents, for example, like everyone was an avenue to get something. So when you say ATMs, to me, that means transactional relationships. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I had a slew of those. Yeah, exactly. So like they're, you know, you're giving me something in exchange for whatever service I'm providing you. Mm-hmm. Right. And... A, that's just such an exhausting way to live, but B, it also really it helped me feel victimized, right? So when people weren't giving me those things and I'm like, look, well, I'm doing the service for you and you're not giving me what I'm expecting in return. Right. Then- I had friendships that were like that. Right. I'm providing this, you're providing that. If you're not providing your end of it, then right. I'm Why not showing up friends? for it. Yeah, like what's, this, what's the deal here? And I also looked at the world as such a dark place that really couldn't be, like I was very cynical. I- couldn't wrap my head around the fact that people were out there and, and would just do something just to, just to be kind, just to be kind or without expecting anything in return. Certainly not for me. Maybe they'd do it for other people, you know, and, I, and like yeah. that was a level that I, I couldn't connect to. And so when I went through and did my, my four step, I was able to see, OK, like I am not a victim in any of these situations. In most of these situations, I'm a volunteer. I've actually opted into these relationships where then I get to feel victimized because it enables me to keep feeling the way I'm feeling. And a big part of that also came out in the nine step where I'm making amends to people where I'm like, oh, this this girl is going to be devastated. You know, when I left her life and the way this whole thing went, like this amends is going to be so difficult because she hasn't been able to function as a human ever since Ben left her life or whatever it is, right? And I go back and, you know, this one particular girl, an example, she was like, Ben, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're sober. I'm really happy you're doing this. But don't take this the wrong way. But I, I haven't really thought about this situation or you since this whole thing happened. Which is right? so common, by the way, with all these So common, and, yes. right? So again, now I'm, I'm living in this reality where I've really injured this person, right? Where I'm a bad person because I did these things to her. And there's no way she can get past it without me doing this. And it just could not have been further from the truth. So that was a little glimpse into this reality where whatever my brain is telling me is most likely incorrect. And this could, I've heard extreme versions of this. Like I'll give you an example. Like I know two people that were living in the reality of that they were molested Yeah. Uh, as children or as teenagers. And then when they did their four step, they were like, I wasn't. Right. But it became this lie or this story that they told themselves and it never happened. And I heard a guy who's 60 years old talk about, he's 60 years old and he has a year. He did his four step. He goes, I've been living for the last 40 years Thinking I was molested. Yeah, and it never and, happened. And it never happened. And another powerful example of that was when I went through and did an amends with my dad. I found out that he didn't care what I did for work or for a living. He really didn't. And he's in finance, and I've idolized him for the longest time. And so I thought, if I'm not making more money than he is now, by the time I'm 30, then I'm a failure, mm-hmm. right? And I just bought into this whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. And I was talking with him, and it came up where I... I mentioned something along the lines of work and what I wanted to do in life and where I wanted to go. And he looked at me and was just like, Ben, I don't care if you're a garbage man. He's like, I I just want you to be happy and healthy. That's it. Yeah. And it was so, I knew like he wasn't bullshitting. He was being completely honest. That's how he's always felt. And it was my own ambition, my own ego that masked that need and that want as something. It was easier to place that on my dad than it was to accept the fact that, like, I'm that hard on myself, right? I'm that attached to material goals that I feel like I need to do that when I'm 30 in order to be, like, successful or worthy of love, really. So when I find – that was so – that was so clear to me where it's like, look, I've created this reality where my dad is the villain in this, right? 
And so I have to live up to his expectations. It's all him. It's him pushing me to do all this. That's why I feel the way I do. Instead of looking at the fact that it's like, no, it's honestly me. Right. Even after he my never dad said that. Right. He he never said that. And at, once he did tell me the opposite, I still felt that way. Yeah. So then it was like, all right, so this is something from me. Um, going back to the resentment thing, just because like I remember at one point I was going through my resentment list and my sponsor or someone in the room was, was like, you love these. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, I hate I hate all these people, especially like ex-bosses. Right. Like, no, he'd be like, no, no, you absolutely are clinging to these resentments and you love them. Right. And I'm like, why? Why would I do this? He goes, because you get to be the victim all the time. Exactly. It was so true. And it's really noticeable for me now that things have changed and that my perspective has changed, you know, for work, at work, for example, or in relationships where it's like, I'm just genuinely a positive person. So like something will happen and I'm looking for the good. Do right. people at work know you're sober? Some do. A lot of them know I don't drink. Yeah. But less know the reason why. And I'm very careful with the way I word it and phrase it. And But I'm also pretty – I'm at a point now where if somebody really digs into it and wants to ask that many questions, usually that's more of an indicator of something on their end than my end. So I'm pretty open with that. Yeah. Um, and there have been a number of situations where I've been able to help somebody by – Kind of by being open, by being a little more open than I would have been otherwise. I used to walk into situations and something negative would happen. I'd be like, "See, I'm fucked. Like this is the way it was always going to be. Right, like, never was going to work out. I was never going to get this. Whatever, whatever." And now it's like things will happen, and I look at it, it's like, "Oh, okay, cool. This is a good opportunity for growth, right?" And I think a lot of that actually came from sponsoring other guys and saying it so much. Where you know, it's like, "Oh, you didn't get this job," and I'm like, "Oh, that's awesome because." probably would have hated it there anyways. It probably wasn't a good fit, right? And yeah. I say that enough to other people to the point where like I genuinely believe it and buy it now. And it's also been just proven to me over time where it's like, again, a lot of the things I wanted when I first got sober, I would have sold myself so short. I was so materialistic. I, I The things that I wanted are not what I want now. And I can only imagine five years from now what I'll actually want. And a buddy of mine had a cool situation where an old timer sat him down and he was like, I want you to write down the five things that you want most in life. And so he wrote them down and gave them to him. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give you this list back when you're five years sober. And he hasn't had five years sober yet, but when he gives him back that list, it's going to be comp- what he wants at that point in his sobriety is going to be totally different than what he wanted five years before. Totally. So if I am so set on these, on needing these things or needing these results in order to feel okay, there's no freedom in that. Whereas yeah. if I'm just more accepting and open to the idea of like, look, this is happening for a reason and something good can come of this if I come at it from that perspective. Yeah. So give me, um, and I've heard this also, I've been asking people for feedback about the podcast and people are like, I would love to know, you know, where are people now in their life? Like, meaning like, give me like a snapshot of like, so where's Ben at today? Like, wh- what are you doing? What, what do you do for work? Like, what's your relationship status and all that stuff? I am working at a job that I'm not qualified to work at when I'm drinking. I would never have the job I have now or the relationships I have if I wasn't sober. I work in finance here in the city, and I don't know if I love it. Mm. But there's that's so freeing for me to say that because for so long it was like, I need to succeed in finance or I need to succeed in this field in order to look okay because that's what other people valued and what right. other people wanted. I also don't have to flee from it today just because I'm not 100% sure it's what I want. And so for me, that's awesome that I get to be in a place where like, A, I get to show up and be of service. B, I get paid. So I'm, I'm not a victim there. If they work me late or whatever, it's like, look, that's what they pay me to do. Mm-hmm. So I get to approach work from that perspective. I'm learning a ton and I get to live in New York. So I'm very blessed from that perspective. My family life is amazing. Honestly, since I've gotten sober, it's changed the dialogue in my household. So the way we communicate Same. is totally different. Me too. I, and I, I don't... I almost don't like saying it because it almost feels selfish in a way where it's like, oh, I'm the reason that our family now communicates. And, and I'm not trying to say that, but the practices I put into place in my day-to-day life do have an effect on the people around me. And so like my parents and I would never text, I love you or anything like that to each other until I got sober. Wow. And so now I, you know, that's something we do all the time. Something I do with my brothers. Like I'll send him cheesy texts, you know, like after he presented that thesis paper, I texted him. I was like, I'm so proud of you, man. Like, you should be really proud of all the work you put into that. And he was like, thanks, man. Let me know when you're going to grab dinner or something like I that. I learned the language. I learned a language that I didn't know in recovery. Like, I didn't – I had no emotional vocabulary whatsoever. Right. None. Like, I remembered, like, when I was, like, I don't know, 16 years old, I went to a friend's house 
He's like one of my closest friends. And I was listening to his family talk and everyone was like, I love you. You're so this, you're so that. And I remember afterwards I was like, you guys are like, what, what was that? Yeah. How did, what was that? And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you like telling your brother, I love you and hugging him. I was like, what, what is this? And he was, and he looked at me like I was the crazy one. Right. Which was accurate, you know, or I don't know if crazy or not, but it was just so different. So different. And the relationship I have with my parents now is amazing. You know, my mom wants to see me. She doesn't have to worry about me. I'll text her just to see how she's doing. Yeah. You know, and I, I get to show up for family members in ways that I was never capable of showing up previously. And it's become very clear to me that, you know, regardless of whatever's going on in their lives, like I can always play a role in, in making their day a little better. And oftentimes it's just by, by not drinking. So let's end here with um, if you knew someone trying to get sober, you, you've mentioned a few people that were on the cusp or TBD. Yeah. What do you? What would you say to someone if you were like, here's a suggestion if you were trying to get sober? I think the biggest suggestion I would have is be is asking them to take an honest look at like, right, so try to control it. Mm. Try to control it. Yeah, which the, me, bo- the book talks about. Yeah, and less for me, it's like the solution kind of just attracts people as it is. So I don't really need to push that on anybody. I've never right. met anybody who was honestly seeking a solution who was like, no, 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 A is not for me, right? Like once you're that willing, like A works, right? It's yeah. like, how do you find that willingness beforehand? And for me, it was like, I could no longer buy into this idea that I was a victim of like, the courts or the school or my parents or whatever, it was me. I was the problem, right? So once I started to look at, okay, now that I genuinely think some of this needs to be addressed, let me try to control it. Let me mm. see if I can just smoke weed normally without turning back to opiates, which I never could do. Right, right? which was my story. Exactly. And so then as soon as I really tried to control it, it just drove me off the wall. Yeah. So that would be my advice would be to... If you, re- if you think you might have a problem, try. So again, my thanks to Ben R. for coming on the show. Reminder, if you do like the content, leave that review. It really does make a difference. couple quick things. Keep coming back podcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions for me. At KCB Podcast is the handle for Twitter and Instagram. You've been listening to Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. My name is Mike S., and I will see you next week.